We have a lot of high school graduates and college graduates and maybe some graduating from graduate school. Today among us, we're going to recognize some of them in a little bit, but I want to say to you who are here, who are graduating, that as you enter a new era of your life, protect your community presence. Protect your witness. Think about it as you head off to college, as you continue your education, as you go into the workplace. The transitions of life are vitally important places to reaffirm your faith in the God who made you, in Christ who saves you by his grace, and to commit yourself to a life that honors him. So make sure that you do it. Protecting your community presence has been a theme now for some weeks here as we have looked at the hard questions that Jesus was asked, mostly by his enemies, sometimes by his friends. When I started this series on the hard questions they were asking of Jesus, I didn't realize how hard it would be to preach about the questions and the answers. And interestingly, Jesus answers the questions, often with questions, which he's going to start in Matthew 19, his answer by asking them a question, and then goes on to say things that to this day we continue to parse and think about and wonder about uh, the response of Jesus to some of these things. They are, they are key things, rendering Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. That's a key response to a question they hoped would make him stumble. And we continue to look at the answers that he gave. And that is true about this question of divorce. So I am suggesting to you, don't let divorce trip you up. That's the title of this message. Now, there are, according to statisticians, 61% of our adults in Orleans Parish, who are single adults. So I know there are many adults present who are single. Jesus, in fact, is a single adult himself. Many of his disciples gathered around him are also single adults. He's going to make a comment about being single in this passage. But what I want to encourage you about is that the teaching of Jesus here is for everybody in the room. It's for all of us. Because we not only, many of us, enter into the covenant of marriage, but all of us relate to marriage in a whole variety of ways, even if we are single adults. So verse 1 of chapter 19 records when Jesus had finished saying these things. I'm in the book of Matthew, by the way. He left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Their typical approach. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother 
and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. A key teaching of Jesus on marriage. They have another question, verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, different players now are in the conversation. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Moses addressed the issue of divorce. They were still talking about what he meant. 1,500 years later, Jesus addressed the issues of divorce, and people continue to talk about what he meant to this day. Some commentators said, Jesus is legislating. Others say, Jesus is not legislating. And I suspect that when I'm done with this message, some of you are going to continue to talk about what I said over lunch. And that's all right. In fact, that's good. As one of the musicians said, you are entering the fray. And that's noble. Let me, uh, let me begin with this statement. Your sexuality is from above. Acknowledge it. We tend in our culture to see our sexuality as part of our animal nature. It is a fundamental error to see your sex as from below. It denigrates a gift which God connected to the image of of God in you. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It is the only phrase that is a commentary on the image of God in you. And you ought to understand, and it is best for you to understand, your sexuality from above, that is, from the image of God. As communicated to you from a loving Father who wanted 
you to experience intimacy, healthy relationships, wonderful communication, to be a co-creator with him on the planet. And the nobility of being male and female is important to understanding what it's about. Anytime you, com- you compare your sexuality to the animal kingdom, you are losing the sense of the holy and the wonder that God intends for you to embrace as male and female. It is God's magnificent gift, your gender, and it permeates who you are and everything you do. It is inescapable. It is to be received with joy, celebration, and a glad heart. There's lots more to say about that, but I'm going to go to another statement. Your marriage is from above. Embrace it. When I say your marriage is from above, maybe you are in a very difficult marriage or were, and you recoil from the notion that that marriage came from God. What I am fundamentally saying when I say marriage is from above is that the covenant itself, the relationship itself came from God. He made them male and female. He set them in the garden. He said, it's all very good. And then he said, but it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And God made Eve and he brought the woman to the man. This is how it is recorded in the second chapter of your Bible. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, for this reason, what happens? For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. And they will become one flesh. The leaving and the cleaving and the one flesh are repeated teachings, not just in Genesis chapter 2, not just reiterated by Jesus in Matthew 19, but again recalled by the Apostle Paul. And so there is this stream of thought throughout the Scripture that a man leaves his father and mother and so marriage is from above as a way of the generations establishing their families and their homes and carry on the purposes of God on the planet. Marriage is God's gift. It is brought to us. God has joined together. Now understand that some of the covenants which God gave to us as humans get perverted and polluted. Civil government is a gift from God. But there came a time when 
men who were godly said in this country, it is our responsibility to do something about this corrupt government which we have received. And the American Revolution is a revolt against a government, though government is ordained by God. And sometimes that which God ordains becomes perverted and polluted. And there are marriages that are marriages of convenience, that are marriages for the sake of money, that are marriages which establish political alliances, that are abusive. We know that to be the case. We should not idealize marriage from previous generations, my friends. Ever since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, the fundamental poison in that fruit was to their own relationship. You understand this. From the beginning, it was not so. We tend to think, well, from the beginning is the idea that there was this wonderful marriage there from the beginning. And husbands and wives were connected in monogamous, loving relationships. Hey, we studied the book of Genesis, didn't we? Have you been to Genesis lately? All you got to go (laughs) to is the book of Genesis and discover that the fall and the sin of man polluted the marriage relationship and the polygamy and the sodomy and the incest and the rape and the murder that are part of the story of Genesis and the Old Covenant are also reflected in the words of Jesus as he thinks back to the law being given. Because when Moses brought that law, marriage was in dire straits. And the examples of marriage that the Hebrews had were people like Jacob with four wives and twelve half-brothers and a family in which there was incest and rape and murder. And so Moses said, look, if you're going to dissolve a marriage, you've got to grant a certificate of divorce. There needs to be a legal unraveling as well as a relational unraveling of this relationship. So though marriage should be understood as from above, from God, as God's wonderful gift to us. And in July, Janet and I are going to celebrate 40 years of marriage, by the way. We've been married a long time, dear, for decades. And many of you have... Well, one of the great teachings I got on marriage was an old man named Shorty Smith that I had coffee with, oh, two or three times a week at City Drug in Gatesville when I was a young married man. And he'd get over that little counter in that little place while we were drinking coffee at the cafe, and he'd say, I tell you what, in our generation, we stayed together if it took all to hide. And he did. He stayed with his wife, Dean, for some 50 years. And so did Red Thompson, the other fellow in that booth. 
And they stayed if it took all to hide. And when they asked Jesus the question, should a man get a divorce for any and every reason? He does not take the opportunity to position himself in the most extreme case. You notice that? He too notes an exception. Not for any reason at all, Jesus said, though there is reason why it might happen. And he gives the exception clause, it's called, except for the case of fornication. Understand marriage from above. Understand divorce from below. Okay? Divorce is the failure of a covenant that was supposed to endure for a lifetime. And when we come to the issue of divorce and we begin to think about it, there's something about it that we know this is, this is so difficult. You know, it's so emotional. When we stood before the preacher or the justice of the peace and we said, I do, we intended it to last forever. We didn't ever want to go back to the courthouse. And young people have a great and solemn respect for the vow which you will speak when you give yourself to another. Do not do it lightly. Do not do it with hesitation. Do not stutter as you make your promise. Do not think, well, I can always get a divorce if it doesn't work out. That's not the way you enter marriage. Not according to how Jesus says it. What God has joined together, let no man separate, is the exaltation of the marriage union as a gift from God and the explanation that divorce itself is the failure of the covenant. And we ought to enter into it with great seriousness. Now, this generation is postponing marriage. Maybe in the hopes that they will not encounter divorce. Maybe in the hopes that they will find that one, their soulmate, to whom they can be connected all their life long. But I, I want to mention to you here and now, okay? The romantic notion of love. Some enchanted evening, you will see a stranger across a crowded room. And somehow, you'll know. Be careful with that. Be careful with that. When God describes how you're to love your wife, he does not use the word eros, which is romantic sexual love. Husbands, agape your wives 
like Christ agaped the church. What's this love which we are to mimic from the Father that holds the covenant together? It is this powerful love, this agape. And agape love is not dependent on the one being loved, but instead flows as a joy and responsibility from the lover poured out upon the lovee. And you got to have this kind of love when the romance fades. And sometimes it does. One of these days you may have three preschoolers in your house. And what you envisioned may not come to pass on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So what holds the the marriage together? It is the love of spouse modeled after the love of God for you. In fact, you are to love by laying down your life for the other. You say, well, what does it mean to lay down your life? Well, you think through what it means. You lay down your ambition. You lay down your ideals. You lay down your will. You lay down your goals. You lay down your life. You lay it all down just like Christ laid it all down for you. He's the model. Say, what is that? That sounds like self-denial. If you want to follow Jesus, there's going to be something you have to do. Deny yourself. Follow Jesus in your marriage. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. What's that? That's... Public identification with the Lord Jesus in your marriage every day and every way. What holds a Christian marriage together is the love that Christ has given toward us, extended to spouse in the marriage. Your marriage will test your Christianity more than any other relationship in your life. You really mean it. Is Jesus really Lord when you get home from work all tired? And she's got little teeth marks on her calf. Is Jesus really Lord when you're all wrung out and the money's gone? And she gets sick? Is Jesus Lord? In you, practice your Christianity first with your husband, with your wife. Love them like Christ loved you. Jesus said, let no man separate. And his enemy said, well, wait a minute. If no man should separate this, then why did Moses say, give her a certificate of divorce? Moses permitted it. He allowed it. When godly people see their marriage fail, 
they seek permission from God to dissolve those bonds. And they go to God in agony. And they come to their preacher often in agony. And they're saying, what am I to do? This is the fourth time she's left me. She gave me gonorrhea. I don't even know if these children are mine. You say, well, that's an extreme hypothetical. No. That's a real case I dealt with. What should I do? And as a pastor, hearing the whole spectrum of things, I am so reluctant to give permission. You say, well, it's not up to you anyway. Thank God it's not up to me, all right? I don't have to decide. But you know what? People come to the pastor to find out if God's given permission. And some people are so hard-hearted, they will beat their wives and abuse their wives and spurn their wives and reject their wives. They are so hard-hearted, they will do things to their wives that we cannot imagine. And because they are so hard-hearted, and Jesus is talking to men, by the way. It's men that made the question. The men were so hard-hearted, they were sending these women into destitution for any old reason. And Moses said, your hearts are so hard, that's why Moses permitted it. And sometimes the hardness of the human heart is such that divorce must be permitted not celebrated, not received as God's gift, but as His permissive will in a situation that is unredeemable. If I were to say otherwise and say there is no case in which divorce is permitted, I would not be consistent with the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 19, nor the teaching of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Some people think that once you have united with somebody and you are one flesh, it is impossible really to get a divorce. I didn't know that till an old deacon told me when I was about 21 years old, that man uh, has two living wives. Yikes, I thought to myself, before I realized that he was referring to his ex-wife as his wife. But he was reflecting the notion that there is such a bond in the sexual union that divorce cannot actually occur. That you're still married forever. Well, brothers and sisters, I don't think the scripture teaches that. I think you can get divorced and that woman is no longer your wife. And that man is no longer your husband. In fact, Paul says, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. The believer is not bound 
in such cases. The covenant is over. And because I believe that divorce is a reality that actually occurs, I do not see perpetual adultery as the case of the remarried. There are two ways in which this is addressed in the teachings of Jesus. He who marries another commits adultery is how it's rendered here. In other places, causes her to commit adultery. That part of it, where the woman is sent out of the house in this patriarchal society where they are basically property, and she is left destitute. Some people think, and I concur, that she ends up in a situation where adultery is a probable for her. He drives her into another home because she has no other way to live. But we can't accept the notion that the remarried are perpetually committing adultery because that does not comport with our doctrine of forgiveness, brothers and sisters. Even if we say divorce is a sin or divorce is the result of sin, and we said we ought to understand divorce from below and avoid it at all case, God hates divorce. But even if we say that, we also know that God buries our sin in the depths of the sea and remembers it no more against us. Amen? And does that include all sin? Yes, every sin. Yes, any kind of failure, any kind. When you come to God in repentance and forgiveness and you ask for His cleansing... He separates you from your sin as far as the east is from the west and buries it in the sea. There is no sin which God cannot remember, but His church must never forget. The church, too, needs to pour grace upon the divorced just as God's Word does. Say, preacher, I don't know. We live in the tension between holding the line on marriage and saying, stay married, young people. Don't give up just because you hit a hard patch, just because it's tough. You stay together if it takes all the hide. And the cases where we know that children and women are in danger. And there is unfaithfulness. And there must be a remedy. And so we hold these intentions. We don't want to bring down the covenant of marriage one notch. We want to see it with all its nobility and greatness, its permanence, its value. Not only for that couple, but for their children, for their extended family, for their friends. Marriages are like bedrock. They are like pillars in our society. They hold extended families together, whole groups of people. And when that marriage fails, everything trembles. Everything trembles. People, people grab to hold on to something when they hear, What? They're getting a divorce? And your legs get weak under you. Why? Because these marriages are powerful in our culture and in our friendship circles. And yet both Jesus and Paul Acknowledge there are times when it's 
going to be over. Marriage is from above. Divorce is from below. True wisdom is from above. I read these last words of Jesus about the one who can accept it should accept it. And I've, I've worked my way through all the different scenarios of what exactly does this mean? James says, the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. We want the simple formula. We want the soundbite about divorce. We want it boiled down to one plus one equals two. But it is more complex than that. It is more difficult than that. In the human community, there are so many different scenarios. And so you pray for wisdom as you deal with the problems in your home and your family and your church. And you ask God to guide you. And you seek to live in His grace. For heaven's sakes, let's not abandon grace when people need it most. Sometimes our marriage gets in trouble and we run away from God at the very moment when we need Him. To hold it all together. Or we get into practices that are ungodly and we distance ourselves from the one in whom we trust. And I think, generally speaking, marriages erode rather than explode. And it is more about your daily walk, your purity of thought and life. You guarding your heart, young man, looking so fine, walking through that office... You guarding your heart. You respecting the ring, whether it is on your finger or the finger of another at work or in your circle of friendship. You saying, I am going to exalt the covenant of marriage in all that I do. And I will not seek to bring it down. It's about you letting Jesus be Lord in your thought life so that you don't drift from the love of your life for the love of these ethereal, imaginary things that you see on the Internet or in movies. It's you relating in flesh and blood to the woman to whom you said, I do, and nurturing that relationship and making it the best it can be. I know people who resign themselves in the covenant of marriage to just, well, this is it. Bad attitude. Wrong approach. There are no dead ends in God's grace, all right? 
So wherever this message finds you, in or out of marriage, wherever it finds you, go for God's best. Reach for the high ground. Expect God to work in you. Love your spouse passionately. Lay down your life for him or her. Be to them the suitable spouse God made you. And live your life in grace. Most of the grace you will need in your marriage is not forgiving adultery, though that happens way too often. But it's forgiving stinky feet and burnt toast. You know? It's forgiving a fault of pride that runs through this person. It's forgiving a quick temper that she can't quite get over. It's forgiving a legalism that's in her thinking and in her actions that disturbs me. We're broken and not just a little. We're really broken. We have real faults. We lose control of ourselves. We are intemperate. Sometimes we get unkind, we get loud, and we get abusive. And forgiving one another in the covenant of marriage is just part of what we promise when we say, I love her. I'll love him till death do us part. Time to bring grace for everybody in the room who needs the love of God poured out on your life. His grace, the scripture says, is greater what? And all our sin. His grace is greater. His grace is greater. What trouble he in, sister? His grace is greater. There are no dead ends with God. He knows the end from the beginning. He loves you passionately. He loves you still. If you're willing to come to him, there's nothing in your life that bars you from fellowship with the God who made you. He is the one who joyfully forgives and receives back the prodigal. Let's bow together. Heads bowed, just talking to the Father. Sharing with Him your heart. God, give you grace. Maybe the Holy Spirit is pointing out to you something for which you must ask forgiveness. You must. Maybe he is pointing to a place where you must extend forgiveness to another. Holy God, 
God of all grace and mercy. Pour your presence into this room, into our hearts. Heal the hurts. Bind us together in your love. Renew the covenant. Renew our strength. Give us the wisdom that comes from above. God, we confess to you our frailty, but we also confess your majesty. So do your work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.